Fertility is complicated. I'm here to answer all your questions. Welcome to my podcast where we discuss all things fertility. I'm your host and fertility expert, Kalise. Let's be honest. Have you always lived in Colorado? Yeah, uh, I'm a native, but I after college I moved to Dallas for about seven years. Oh, okay. So where school. in Colorado did you grow up? Uh, my husband and I both actually grew up in Eaton, Colorado, up by Greeley. Really? Yeah. You know where it's at? I do. Nobody knows where it's at. Yeah. How do you know? Um, well, we've actually had a couple of patients oh. that have been from Eaton. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's funny. Very good. So did you go to school with your husband then? Did you grow up like grammar mm-hmm. school and yep. all that? Kindergarten through high school. We actually went uh, to junior prom together. Oh my goodness. Um, he always, he'll claim that he always wanted to date me and I just was not nice and never dated him. <laughs> so um, we actually reconnected in Dallas at the age of like 26. Oh my goodness. Started dating at 29 and got married at 30. Wow. Yeah. Well, how did he end up in Dallas? Um, he moved there for a girl that he was <sighs> with at the time. And then they quickly broke up because it wasn't working out. And then he actually moved around for work. Um, and I was dating other people as well. And then eventually we were single at the same time and just worked out. That's something else. Yeah, it's quite the story. Wow. It's fun. Well, I have this theory about high school and school sweethearts. What's your they theory? They typically stay together. Yes. My parents were high school sweethearts. My aunt and uncle. Wow. Yeah. It's That's funny. so cool. So do you have siblings? We do. Or I do. Um, we do. We, we do. Me and myself. Somebody has. <laughs> um, I have an older brother. He and his wife and two kiddos live in Greeley. And then I have an older sister, and she and her husband and two kiddos, three kiddos, live in Missouri. Now, what did your parents do when you were growing up? Um, my dad, he still works. He's a mortgage lender, works at a bank. Um, and then my mom was a teacher for over 30 years, and now she is the director of children's ministry at their church in Eaton. Oh, really? Yeah. They still live there, and my husband's parents still live in Windsor, so yeah. whenever we go north, we just see everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that a paid position for her, or is she just all volunteer? No. she Yeah, it's paid. Good. Yeah. Well, it's hard. You know, the children's curriculum and getting teachers and things like that, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a big job. They actually um, started a, about five years ago, they started a Christian school through the church, um, and she kind of leads the mission trips for the children too, or the kids, not children, I guess, high schoolers. And <laughs> she stays very busy. Yeah, I bet yeah. she does. Good for her. Yeah, it's fun. Oh, good. So did you always know that you wanted to be in the medical field? I did. Uh, even back in high school, I wanted to be a pediatrician. Um, I did a paper on a pediatric surgeon and I was like, I could totally do this. And then... Looking at 13 plus years of school just to start working, I can't do that. So then um, a girlfriend of mine in high school went to, or applied to nursing school. I was like, well, I could do that. I mean, we'll see how it goes. And I applied to one school, CU in Colorado Springs, UCCS, and got in and yeah, just oh wow. Here so I am. you you actually started as a as a nurse. Mm-hmm. And what fields were your specialty? Um, I did after undergrad. I did labor and delivery. Oh, 
Yeah. And that's all I did for probably seven years before I got my master's and women's health nurse practitioner degree. Okay. Yeah. So did you always want to be in the OB side of things? Yeah. I, well, I can't, yeah, not, I can't say always. I, I applied to the ER, um, after grad or after undergrad, I applied to an ER residency and then a labor and delivery residency and the labor and delivery offered me a job first. So I could have gone to ER, but I'm really glad that I went to labor and delivery. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I worked at um, Parkland Hospital in Dallas. It's like the largest. I mean, they delivered like fifteen or 16,000 babies a year. Wow. It, it was unreal, but it was so much fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It it usually is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's typically a nurse's dream. You know, the majority of nurses are always like, I want to be, I want to be in labor and delivery or I want to be. Mom, mom baby. Mom baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was NICU. Oh, so, see. Yeah. And. That's good. That I. I really wanted like blood and guts. That's what I loved was and that's blood why I, and guts. I thought ER, I was like, oh my gosh, fast pace. You'll never get bored. It's like ER on TV. Yeah. But yeah, TV is real. Yeah, for it's, sure. <laughs> all of it. All of it. Yeah. So I, I'm like you though. I was offered a job, you know, during one of my rotations in the NICU and I was like, Wow, before I even graduated. It was great. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, which is unheard of. And Did I, you, have was, you always been here? In Colorado uh-huh. as a nurse, yes. Okay. Um, and I was a NICU nurse for 17 years. So. Okay. Yeah. But then, now you're in the fertility world. Yes. So you, did you go from labor and delivery and then right into fertility? It was, it was really crazy. Um, I mean, I feel like the whole journey is kind of crazy because I've never... In the beginning, I didn't know what I wanted to do. It was just the first job, so I accepted. And then I went and got my women's nurse practitioner degree and um, stayed in Dallas at Parkland and just worked at an outlying women's clinic. Um, and then met my or reconnected with my husband and um, moved back to Colorado. And the first job that I applied for was on, I don't know, Indeed.com. They offered me the job and I get here and I have no idea what it's all about. It's a whole new world. A a completely different world than labor and delivery. It's women's health, but it's the other side of the spectrum. I had so many questions. I feel like Amanda and Jen were just probably like, uh, did we hire the right person? I felt the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I I was like luteal phase. What's that? (laughs) I mean, estrogen levels, uh, I don't know. Birth control pills. (laughs) Yeah. It was, I, but I feel like that's the majority of people in infertility, unless, I mean, there's, you really don't get infertility in school. You maybe just get the basics. You definitely don't get IVF or IUI or anything like that. So right, it was just brand new. And you think about us being in the medical field, mm-hmm. people out in the world that don't really understand fertility, yet they're not getting pregnant and they come to us and they find out all of this information. Even like... I mean, I mean, we can get really in depth, but even to the extent of ovulation and you have 24 to 36 hours to fertilize an egg after ovulation, nobody knows those details. Right. They just think, oh, people get like randomly get pregnant. If you keep trying, you'll get pregnant. I don't, I mean, it's just all the details that make fertility interesting. Nobody knows. Yeah. Unless you're in it. Yeah. It really is interesting. So 
How do you, I mean, how do you like being a fertility versus just an OB clinic? I love it. Yeah. Um, In the beginning, I was a little, not skeptical, just a little discouraged because um, in the OB world, we get, we, you know, we're able to do IUD removals and and insertions and Nexplanon removals and insertions. And can you not do that now? Now now we can. Okay. Um, I don't even think, well... We don't really do Nexplanons unless somebody right. comes. But um, in the beginning, there were really no procedures for us, uh, MPs and PAs. And so it was just like OB visits and annuals. And, ta- and it was just like, okay, well, I'll get used to this. This is fine. I can do pre-ops and talk about sperm. I can do that. But then now that we get to do histograms and HSGs and TET, I mean, the whole gamut, it's so much fun. That's so much great. Fun. Yeah. Well, what does an NP do that's different than a PA? Is there any difference in the fertility world? Um, in the fertility room, not not for us where we work. And honestly, I don't know if there would be a difference anywhere else. The difference with PAs and MPs, PAs can do surgery. Um, MPs, I guess, could do surgery if we had our first assist, but there's really no reason to get our first assist certi- certification. Um, so in, in our area, in my area, um, we do the same thing. MPs and PAs do the exact same thing. Does a PA make more money? I don't believe so. I think we make very similar. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. From what I know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I want to go back to, you said something about you and your husband reconnected. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me a little story about that? Um, so let's see. He, I was already in Dallas working and he, um, moved to Dallas to be with his girlfriend at the time. And I saw on Facebook that he had moved to Dallas. So I messaged him and I said, Hey, I haven't seen you since high school. How are you? Let's meet up. So, um, we caught up and everything was great. And there was, I don't, I mean, there were no feelings on my end at the time. He was with a girlfriend. So I'm assuming no feelings on his end. Um, and then, I mean, just as the, we kept up like kept in contact every like three to four months, just text messages or just a phone call. Um, and then he broke up with his girlfriend and moved and got a new job. So he moved to San Francisco and Arkansas. But in the meantime, we kept in touch. Um, and then he was moving back to Colorado and I had just broken up with my boyfriend. And so we came to Dallas for business, quote unquote, air quotes and took me out and we talked all night long. And then he came back four weeks later for business. And he, at that, he even said like, I think I'm going to talk to you more. I was like, okay, you can. He's like, no, I, I'm really going to talk to you more often now. Great. And like two weeks later, he's like, I think I'm going to marry you. All right. I think I'm going to marry you too. Sure. (laughs) So Uh, then it just, and then we dated for maybe 10 months. Yeah. And got married. So that's crazy. Yeah. It was really fun. That is fun. Now, um, did you always want children? Um, Oh, that's a really good question. I wanted children because that's what we're supposed to want. And then, I mean, I've always, um, hmm, yeah, I always thought, well, since we have children and that's what we're supposed to do, then I'll have three because that's what I grew up with. <laughs> and, okay. And now. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh, I think, I think one is good. 
We'll see how it goes. But uh, I loved my nieces and nephews and I've always babysat since I can remember, but I really haven't really ever had that like internal instinct to pop out babies. Yeah. And I know exactly what you're talking about. I never had the maternal instincts. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I, you know, I was a great mom and it was the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. But it was, you had a child because that's what you were supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even after we got married, um, I, it was probably my idea and I was like, okay, well let's just try and get pregnant. And he, and he, he was like, well, let's just wait a little while. Let's be married for a year. And I was like, okay, that's fine. But most likely I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's going to take a while. So if you really want kids, then we should probably just start trying. Now, how did you know you had PCOS? Um, even back in high school, I don't think they diagnosed with PCOS back in high school, but I had irregular periods. And so I had been on birth control for almost 15 years. Um, and then I didn't diagnose myself. I wasn't ever diagnosed because I was always on the pill. Um, and so once I got off the pill, once I got to my job now, um, that's when I did my AMH and I had an ultrasound to check my ovaries and there was greater than 60 resting follicles and my AMH was 24. Wow. Um, so I had a, a pretty significant case, but, um, I just, being on the pill for that long, I always just had, uh, you know, we're going to have an issue getting pregnant. I just know I am. So if you want to have a baby, let's start now and we'll see where it goes. But, but it sounds like maybe he was on the same page you were. Yeah. If we have one, fine. If we don't, fine. Yeah. I think he definitely, um, has more of a, a, a desire to have children even in, even in the beginning of our relationship. Um, I mean, it's not like I didn't want children. It was it just wasn't like I have to have them now. Right. And which which our, we see a lot of. We see all it, the time. That drive is very strong and there's no getting around it. Yes. Yes. And if you if if women well, couples, if and if it doesn't happen, it is devastating. Understandably so. Um, but it was never devastating to me. It just was what it was. Do you feel like it's hard to relate to some of those patients because you've never really had that? Yes, absolutely. Even going through, so a little bit of my story, if that's if we're good. Okay. Hit it. Um, <laughs> Hit it hard. Okay. <laughs> um, with PCOS and being where I work, uh, we tried on our own for probably, I don't know, six months to a year just because we had no agenda to meet. And then it wasn't working. Now you were already working in the fertility mm -hmm. field mm -hmm. when this was going on. Okay. Yep. I just want to get my timeline right. Yeah. So okay. we got married. I, I moved back to Colorado, October of 2015. And that's when I started working in the fertility world. We got married March of 2016. And so, um, we just tried on our own or didn't really try. just didn't have any protection, um, which is essentially trying. Um, and then because of where I work, it was very easy for me just to, you know, get ultrasounds and blood work and do an IUI if we wanted to. Um, so I met with one of our physicians just to get on the schedule or get my profile in the chart. Um, and we did seven IUIs, 
Um, the third IUI, I did get pregnant and um, made it to 13 weeks, but our little boy had trisomy 13. Oh, wow. And passed, which is looking back and even being in the moment a, a blessing in disguise because trisomy 13 can, you can carry until term. Right. Um, right. Now, um, you had the products of conception mm-hmm. tested. So you were at home and no. started bleeding. Like what happened there? Um, so again, being in the medical field and be where we work, I, we had, um, I just had ultrasounds, you know, every other week just to check in on the baby as soon as I found out that I was pregnant. Um, and one of our sonographers who's phenomenal, she <laughs> recognized that there was fluid around the brain and the neck was a little enlarged or the, the fold was a little enlarged. Um, I don't know if you could even see that at the, that size. I think that's what she said, but definitely fluid around the brain. She's like, sometimes you see this and it goes away, but sometimes it can mean something different. So you need to get into your OB and you need to go see MFM and have a more in-depth evaluation. Um, so I went to my OB and they didn't even have to do an ultrasound. I, I just took the pictures that the sonographer at our job took and um, it was sufficient. So I went to an MFM at 13 weeks and when they started doing the ultrasound, the heartbeat had already stopped. Um, so I didn't even bleed, think the Lord. Mm-hmm. Women are amazingly strong, especially passing a miscarriage at home on your own. I mean, I can't imagine doing that. And so, um, they gave me that option, but I chose to have a DNC. Yeah. And then I, um, we had the products tested and that's when it came back as a, a little boy with trisomy 13. Wasn't that great information for you to have though? Absolutely. And wouldn't you recommend that? Because there's a there's a lot of people that don't want to have the products tested, mm-hmm. but it gives us so much information about what's to come. It, I completely agree. And it gives you a little bit of closure because a lot of us as women and couples, I guess in general, we'll find a reason to blame ourselves. And the number one reason for a miscarriage in the first trimester is chromosomal abnormalities, which we have no control over. Um, I do believe that um, some patients that I speak to, um, they don't want to do it because it doesn't change what their plan is moving forward. And it really wouldn't change. It really um, didn't change my plan moving forward, but, uh, um, it was, it was good to know that it, that it was, that it was something out of my control. Yeah, I agree. And, um, it's, it's hard to express that to people when they're in that moment. Oh, for sure. So, um, so you can carry on with your story. I'm sorry. I made you backtrack there a little bit, but I wanted to get kind of that information and how important it is to really get some testing done. Some genetics are so important. Absolutely. Especially if you have more than one, I mean, there's, there's reasons why, I mean, the, the risk of miscarriage is what, 20 to 25% in the first trimester, which is so high and scary. But when you know chromosomal information, it just, it helps with your plan moving forward. And again, like I said, it, it helps with closure too. Um, so on the third IUI, we got pregnant and then... No, obviously- I'm sorry. No, no, no. Was there anything different about that third time that you felt that was the clincher? That's what got me pregnant? No. No. Okay. I mean, it could have been the nurse that did my IUI. Was it me? 
It was <laughs> it wasn't. But but it, I mean that's what happens though because I had that same nurse do my um subsequent four IUIs yeah. afterwards. Um and so it's just I mean it's just random but um no I don't think I don't think we did anything differently. He was were those on, medicated cycles? Uh-huh. Yep. They were Clomid, letrazole, letrazole. letrazole. Okay. Yeah, because of the PCOS, letrazole, um, and then a trigger injection to help me ovulate. Okay, mm-hmm. good. And I didn't have... It was pretty crazy with having greater than 60 resting follicles. I didn't have like four or five, six mature follicles. I only had, I know. you know, one or two. Isn't that something? Yeah, it does work that way. Um, I did think it was unusual when you originally said that you had seven IUIs because that's typically not our protocol. You know, that's not good practice. No. Once, you know, people get through that third and fourth one, we're having serious conversations with that couple. Absolutely. So it makes sense now to me that you, you know, you did have a fertilized egg, mm-hmm. which is important. It means that sperm and egg are communicating. So right. that's good. Tubes are open. Tubes are open. Mm-hmm. That's a good sign. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, like you said, it's just, it's abnormal. It's an abnormal pregnancy. Mm-hmm. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to make it to term. Um, and then you can start from scratch again mm-hmm. and then do choose to do another three, maybe four. Maybe four. And that's what you did. And the reason I did, I mean, yes, we absolutely do not encourage more than four at the most. Um, some, a lot of people will go through three and then we'll kind of reevaluate the situation. And if they truly desire another one, then we'll, then we'll do a fourth one, but chances of pregnancy don't go up with that fourth one. Um, but because I work where I work, uh, the nurses were amazing and the doctor was amazing and allowed me just to do them. Um, and I got pregnant on the third one so we could try, you know, up to three again. I tried a fourth one. Um, and all along the way, there was always talk about the, like the, the, the option of IVF. Um, but that's just, that was just something that I wasn't ready to do. And so I think that's why they also let me do that fourth one. Yeah. So. And then after that fourth one didn't take, Mm -hmm. like you never got a positive pregnancy with any of the others, correct? No. Yeah. No. And you never have had a positive pregnancy at home ever? Ever. Never. Okay. Mm -mm, Nope. Um, And my, I mean, yeah. And it kind of goes along with uh, my story that we'll probably get to, but um, I, I have periods they just occur six, seven, eight, ten weeks. Like you just never know. I mean, as long as you're ovulating, as long as you're having a period, you can always get pregnant. But the health of that egg that's being ovulated when you have random cycles, it's just I mean right. if yeah, now, it's just were difficult. You, did you bleed heavily or was it sometimes spotting? So you weren't really sure you had a period? Um that's a good question. I for the most part, because there was so much time in between each period, I would bleed heavily. Um, I think when I when I was on birth control, I would kind of spot or um, spot through the pill. But when I 
yeah, when I wasn't on anything, I would bleed pretty heavy for the first two to four days and then it would dissipate. So you knew it was a period mm-hmm. because I know I've had some PCOS patients that are like, I'm not sure. Yeah. I had a little bit of brown spotting. Is that my period? I'm like, I don't know. Come in. Let's check. Yeah. <laughs> let's do some lab work. Let's, let's do an ultrasound and see if you've got some lining in there. Yeah. What's going on? So Yeah. No, mine was mine was pretty apparent. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you could maybe calculate that you were going to, you probably ovulated late, mm-hmm. not typically on that 12, 13, 14 day. It's yeah. more like 18, 19, 20. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's so crazy. And it's, it's hard to really guess. I have an app just so that I can track whatever happens, but, um, it, it's never helpful. No. Like it's, it's just awful. <laughs> Why do I bother? Why do I even? <laughs> Why do I even look at it? Exactly. exactly. So after you had your fourth IUI, mm-hmm. and you you did not get a positive pregnancy test, you got a negative pregnancy test. Mm-hmm. Um, what were you feeling at that time? Um, you know, I think we were prepared for that just because we were so used to seeing the negatives, which is. That's a, I mean, that's different for everybody. Um, to to kind of go back before the IUI started and before we were trying on our own, we had a, um, essentially wanted to adopt. Um, but the agency that we were working with, you had to be married for three years before you could adopt an infant. Hmm. And so in the meantime, we we're like, okay, well, maybe the Lord wants us to do something else in the meantime. So we tried on our own and then we went through these IUIs, um, got pregnant, had to wait a couple periods and then do more IUIs. And so by the time we were done with our seventh IUI, um, we had talked about it and we were just like, okay, we're, we're good. And on top of all of that, hormones are awful. Yeah. Women who go through IVF are the strongest women. I mean, it makes us all a little crazy. Hormones in general make us all a little crazy. But letrozole and my mind, they did not <laughs> mesh well. It, but you stayed married through it, which is good. Barely. <laughs> barely. It was so crazy. It was so crazy. Uh, what were some of the... Were you more like you cried or you just yelled? Or like what were your reactions to it? I w- my... <laughs> I was so mental. <laughs> I I kept it all inside and I would just I would just like be like, I, I think I married the wrong guy. I shouldn't I probably should still be in Texas. I don't I don't even know like if he loves me and I don't know if I love him. Like what's going on? It was it was the largest roller coaster and like talk about no like sex drive and then no physical attraction and then I mean oh. things just happened and I in the moment or in those seven cycles, I didn't know that it was the medication. Yeah. And you talk about sex drive. I've heard that a lot with some of the patients that it's like, because it has to be so calculated, it's like the attraction for sex is gone. Absolutely. And then you do IUI where you have, to, he has to give a sample in order for them to wash it down. Um, and so it's like, okay, like let's. <laughs> Let's do the business. I mean, let's make it happen. I ne- I need your sample so I can take it to work, so I can wash it down, so I can get the IUI. So do yeah, your job. So romantic. Oh, completely. <laughs> he was a he was a very good sport and a trooper. I don't know how he stayed with me. I was. It was crazy. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. 
So in the end, he really loves you. That's he what you need does. to know. That's what he you does took away. <laughs> oh, Thank the Lord. Thank I the know. Lord. Yes. I do feel so bad for those husbands. It's a lot. It's a lot to go through. Yeah. yeah. And spouses and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Partners. partners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of the above. Mm-hmm. So um, tell me a little bit more about um, you decided you didn't want to do IVF. And you yeah. guys had talked about that. Tell me yeah. how that process went. Um, it's it's readily available for sure. And it's our rates are phenomenal. Um, higher than IUI, that's for sure. <laughs> way higher yeah. than IUI. And our team is amazing. And I would be in such great hands. Um, but it really came down to my faith. Yeah. Um, I And with PCOS, you just have no idea how many eggs or embryos you can create. Like with my 60 plus resting follicles, after you give me all of that medication to enhance all of those follicles, who knows how many, not to mention hyperstimulation. Right. Um, Obviously they all wouldn't have been mature. They all wouldn't have fertilized. They all wouldn't have grown. But just the idea of me producing nine to 10 to 11 to 20 mature embryos. Um, and then a lot of, um, personally, just personally, uh, doing the genetic testing, I just wouldn't have been comfortable with doing that. Um, so I would have had who knows how many embryos just sitting there waiting to transfer. And we only transfer one at a time, maybe two. Um, and so I just didn't feel, I just couldn't do it. I just Mm -hmm. couldn't, did not feel comfortable. Well, with the genetic testing, you um, you tested your products of conception, mm-hmm. and you felt that was pretty important. Mm-hmm. But as far as genetically testing um, embryos that you've created, mm-hmm. tell me um, why you didn't feel comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, so the the testing of the products of conception with my miscarriage that was more informational purposes only. It didn't change the outcome. It didn't change me moving forward in any way. Um, with the embryo and genetic testing on the embryos, um, again, this is a personal opinion. Um, it, I believe creation is when a sperm meets an egg. Um, it's very, that's very difficult for a lot of people to understand, which is perfectly fine. Um, and so when a sperm meets an egg and creates an embryo, whether it's abnormal or whether it's normal genetically, it's still a life in my eyes. And so there's no way that I could have genetically tested these embryos and then discarded the abnormal ones. So even if they had been um, tested trisomy 13, you would have felt like you would have to transfer that embryo and actually attempt to carry it. Yeah. I mean, and and that's why I could never get to that point because there's nobody or I don't know of anybody who would do... I mean, I guess there are clinics and practices that do compassion transfers. Um, I just don't know too much about that because that's not something we do. And I don't know, yeah, I don't know ethically if anybody would transfer an abnormal embryo, like multiple, you know what I mean? If If I had 20 to 30 embryos that could have been tested, obviously we test eight at a time. Right. Um, and, you know, five came back abnormal and four or uh, three came back normal. Those five, I would still feel very responsible for. Um, and then beyond that, if I, even though 
So genetic testing would be off the table. And I had these anywhere from one to 20 embryos. Um, in my personal opinion, I wouldn't feel comfortable with having them in, having them frozen for a long period of time. Um, because eventually they would need to be transferred and I'm responsible for those quote unquote lives essentially. And what if I get to be 40 to 50 years old and I can't transfer them anymore and they're not, or I'm not, my uterus isn't viable or, you know, ready to, to carry another pregnancy. So there were just all these moral questions that I couldn't answer. So IVF just was not even an option. Is that faith basis um, throughout your family also? Um, or is that just a personal? It's definitely, my husband and I have the same vision or the same faith understanding in that regard. Um, a lot of my family, they don't understand infertility, which I didn't either. And so to talk about IVF and creating embryos and what an, what an embryo even is, like, this is, see your son over there that he used to be an embryo. That's what it is. Um, but after educate, I mean, talking about it and educating, and everybody has their own opinion and, um, by all means have your own opinion for sure. Uh, we just did a lot of talking and a lot of, um, listening to, um, some of our pastors back in Dallas, they were, uh, had really good words of encouragement and, and, uh, biblically, biblically based words. Um, so it was just, so now that the process has passed, I would say that we're all on the same page, like my parents and his parents. And, um, but I think during the time they were like, why not? Like it was, and God is so funny because I work at this place of a fertility practice where I'd be cared for. And then my husband has insurance where IVF is covered. That's so rare. It's too. so rare. So it was just, it was just a weird situation to be in when all these, when we have so many patients who desire this and they can't afford it or desire it and they go into debt for it, or it was just weird to be in that place. Yeah. So could you opt to only have, um, five eggs fertilized? That's a really good question. Um, I asked that question, um, if we could do the egg retrieval and have him give his sample and then pair one at a time and, and grow them out. Um, I spoke with a physician of ours who is no longer at our practice. And she said that she had only done it one time and it was for religious purposes, but nobody in their right mind would encourage that. The cost of it is lengthy. But the, you had insurance. The process and is lengthy. That is true. So, so I don't buy that, but yeah, <laughs> you know, you had all kinds of coverage. Yeah. You worked there, so you have a benefit for it. Yeah. And you have insurance for it. So I just wondered if, you know, even, even if you didn't genetically test them, what if, like you said, mm -hmm. what is an option for, um, people who have the same faith as you do? Yeah. And that's a good question too. There are many believers who go through IVF and are completely comfortable with doing this, which is by all means, that is perfect. Um, I mean, I have, I have many friends that, uh, 
people from Eaton who go to church with my parents and, um, even people in Dallas that I, that I went to church with, um, they've all, I mean, a lot of them have done IVF and have babies now. Um, it's just for some reason, I just had this strong conviction and I just couldn't move forward with it. And maybe it was because the PCOS piece that greater than 60 resting follicles and that, and that, uh, creating more embryos, but pairing the one-to-one, um, or one in making, creating one embryo at a time, that physician no longer works at our practice. She wasn't there for very long after I started. And I don't think any of our other physicians would have done that. Um, so, uh, (laughs) I keep popping my knuckles. Um, so if you can, if you can find a physician that does that, that's Mm -hmm. awesome. I don't know of any who do that now. You know, we do so many different alternative kinds of things for different types of people and families and situations that you would think that there would be a specific protocol for people of faith. Yeah. But we don't have it. I take it. It's, there's nothing in place for that. No. And I think because it does, I, I don't think, I don't think it's something that would be marketed. Like they don't want, they, um, I don't know if that's something that they would want the public to know yeah. is an option, which is unfortunate um, because maybe maybe they would have maybe more couples would come and and uh, choose to go this route if they knew that was an option. Right, if they were really struggling with it, and mm-hmm. and because sometimes you didn't you don't have much. Um, I I don't see that you're having real issues with. I wanted a you know a genetically you know, sound child of my own made of my husband and myself. Yeah. And you don't seem to struggle with that as much as a lot of people do. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a, which is difficult for me to empathize with or to sympathize with because I don't have that desire, but there are many couples who strongly desire to have that genetic component. Um, I think, I don't know if it's society. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but if, if we're not related to our children biologically, then it's difficult to, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Relate to them or to have that connection. I don't know. I think it's becoming less important, but, but this is an option. IVF is is an option for many people or becoming more of an option for more people. And so to have that genetic component is, is, I don't know, just important for, for certain people. Yeah. Yeah. So along the lines of your faith, Mm -hmm. does that also mean that, um, you really wouldn't be for embryo adoption either? Ooh, I would definitely do embryo. Oh, you would? Oh, for sure. So you didn't really feel the need to carry a child? No, which is so (laughs) strong. I mean, I always, I think I, when we were doing IUIs and, and experiencing that miscarriage, I... And even today, like there's a little, there's a piece of me that's like, man, it would be amazing to feel that baby grow inside and to feel those kicks and to be able to re- relate to other women who have had pregnancies. Um, but we have now, so we adopted a little boy back in July and he's six and a half months old and he is the absolute best thing in the world. Like we cannot get enough of him. And so the fact that I didn't carry him, um, 
is okay because I got I get to spend every day. And he was in the NICU for two weeks and we just did skin to skin 24 hours a day for two weeks. And he knows my voice probably better than he knows his bio mom's voice. Um, so yeah, I didn't, I mean, I think, I think women in general would love to have that feeling, but it, it's not such a strong desire of mine that I, that I need to do it. But I do love the idea of embryo adoption because there's over a million embryos frozen across the United States, um, that are up for adoption per se, or donation. Um, and that's why we, we had such, um, interest in donating in, in, in people from our practice who created embryos to donate their remaining embryos instead of discarding them or, um, giving them to research per se. And so that's why we created the embryo uh, um, donation program within the place that I work now. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm impressed with that statistic. I didn't know that there were so many available. I thought it was a very limited option. No, there, there are very many. Very many, <laughs> very, there are very, very many lots, very many lots, <laughs> many more, many much. Um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I mean, I, I feel like in Colorado, there's one main company snowflake. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the national embryo donation center on the East coast, I think. Um, but yeah, I, re- I, read that somewhere on, on some website that there's over a million frozen. Mm-hmm. Now the quality of the embryo, that's always something to that like our practice, we like to, we like to educate the patients to keep that in mind because if they're going to go through the emotional journey and pay for this embryo, they want it to be successful. Um, but it, it depends on the lab where they were created. Yeah. So there's a lot, I mean, it's a, hmm. it's a very viable option for That's sure. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you talked earlier about, uh, you wouldn't feel comfortable if you had extra embryos that you couldn't actually carry yourself mm-hmm. and you wouldn't feel comfortable with anybody else adopting those embryos and, and carrying them. That would be so difficult Yeah. to put yourself, to put myself in that situation. And I've talked to a lot of the, um, girls at work and it's just, it's just a it would, again. It's another weird situation to to be in. Um, but leading the donor embryo program, um, working with women who and couples that want to donate their remaining embryo. Some of them are gung ho. They're like, oh yeah, donate it. I, I mean, I don't need to know where they go. I don't need to. I don't need to know if they become a baby or not. And then some they want to do it. And then they meet with a psychologist because all donors um, have to meet with a psychologist and they are asked these questions and they try and get on the same page and they come back and they're like, we're not ready. We don't, we can't do it, which is completely understandable. It's like, you see these beautiful babies that you've created and these embryos that can turn into these beautiful babies. And you're like, somebody else might raise these future babies. Right. It'd be very, it'd be very hard. Right. Yeah. Now as part of your faith, um, I know there's a scripture that talks about, um, you know, raising your children. Mm-hmm. And is that what you're kind of basing that on is mm-hmm. you know, like you wouldn't, because you would want to be responsible for that child's faith. Yep. Uh, and not essentially, not for their child's, the child's faith per se, but that life was put into my care for a reason, even if I'm choosing to create it by IVF, um, that's my responsibility. Um, and so I can't. 
I can't create personally. I can't create these babies or future babies and be unsure of where they go and how they're raised um, or cared for or loved on. If that's if I've if God allowed me to create these and God has put them in my care to raise them appropriately. So yeah, even if I yeah, if I had gone through IVF and I had multiple, I just don't know what I would have done. Yeah. You know, and you and I have seen that very rarely do they have do women get the option of, you know, they don't really create that many embryos. Yeah. When they when they've been when they've had fertility issues, mm-hmm. they, you know, we're happy to get one healthy embryo. That is very true. And so it's probably very hard for you to look at those, you know, stats and say, more than likely, I'm only going to have two or three healthy embryos anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yet, because what is it? I have 60 resting follicles. Exactly. What? So you create however many mature embryos and then you cut them in half or you... That or is correct. Eggs so, and then cut so them in half. So for example, say they retrieved, you know, 20 eggs and 10 of them will fertilize. Yes. And then half of those will be viable. Yes. And then you, if you, if you choose to genetically test them, then right. you just don't even know if half or one or all five will be genetically right. normal. So yeah. Yes. Right. And, and I, in keeping that in mind, if, even if, I mean, I have 60 resting follicles, I'm not going to have 60 mature eggs that are right. going to be fertilized, but I mean, I, I could have 10 and, or even five. And for somebody who doesn't want more than one, Have a or, child. one or two, <laughs> yeah, I just can't imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. So does, does the same thing hold true for, um, sperm donations? Like would your, would your husband ever, like before he met you, before he fell in love, like when he was in college and he's paying for college, would he feel the same way morally about donating sperm? I don't think so. I feel the same way that as he does now. Yeah. Yeah. And what I'm asking you is, um, is it, is it wrong to donate eggs or embryos, but it's not wrong to donate sperm? Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, so I don't, we don't, I don't think it's wrong by any means. It's just, Oh, I used the wrong word. Sorry. That's okay. (laughs) It's just very, it's just very personal. I just, I, and, and, and it's really hard to, the girls at work have been wonderful in listening to me and, um, and being supportive of my beliefs because it's this, I mean, this, I, I work in fertility and I won't do IVF and it's, it's like a, I don't know. It's just like a tug of war, but, um, I think both him and I have the same opinion on egg donation and sperm donation for ourselves I would not feel comfortable donating my eggs, even though I have a gazillion of them. Who knows how healthy they are? Um, because that could event that could potentially turn into an embryo, which could turn into a baby. And I am responsible for that. It's just a. I mean, it's just, and it's difficult to understand if you're not a believer, or you know what I mean. Um, 
which is perfect. I mean, you don't have to be a believer. It's just, it's just the, the way that I believe it should go. Yeah. I think you're really fortunate because you have a balance about it. But for example, if there's someone that has um, your faith basis, Mm -hmm. yet they have that strong desire to have children that Mm -hmm. is so overwhelming that it's it's hard for them to even function during a day without having that on their mind constantly. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. And and even working through the process, when I found out that we have IVF coverage and that we could potentially do one-to-one or create one at a time, um, in my head, I'm like, okay, so we can do this. We can, we can go through the process and we can create embryos and we don't have to do genetic testing and, and hopefully only a certain amount are, you know, mature and, and grow so maybe, so we could, yeah, we can do it. We can figure out a way. I was just trying to justify because of the situation that I'm in and the coverage that we had. And so I can completely understand how couples or women do that. And, and, and couples do that. It's, it's just, it's just what we do. We want something so badly yeah. that we, that we figure out a way to get it done. Yeah. And even, even if they did go against their faith or their moral belief Mm -hmm. about creating embryos and went ahead and did that anyway, because their desire was so strong. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I envision them looking at their child and saying, how could I think that was wrong? How is that? You know, and it's so hard. I bet they probably never come back and and think about that because there's this beautiful baby in front of them. Yeah. Like this was totally worth it. Yeah. Totally worth it. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to transfer another one because this baby's so great. Yeah. Which is understandable. I mean, right. it's, just, it's just. Is it hard for you at work to, uh, you seem, like I said, you seem to have such this, this great balance of you believe what you believe, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. You do your thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but is it hard for you to counsel some patients about that? Do you find yourself in those positions very often? Not very often. I think I can remember one time in the past f- oh, four and a half years that I've been there where um, a couple was sitting in front of me and they said, okay, not as a provider, as a, as a person, do you think this is okay? And so I, I, I was like, you're asking me as a person in front of you, not a provider. And I'm going to tell you what I believe you can make your own decisions and judgments based on your own morals and, and ethics. Um, I think they appreciated it. I'm I honestly am not sure. I think they were transferred to a physician after our initial consult. Um, so I'm not really sure what happened, but yeah. Um, other than that, I don't find it too difficult because I'm just educating. I'm educating them on the options. I'm educating them on how we care for them in our practice. Um, the nurses really do the hard stuff. I mean, they run the joint. Um, so they educate on genetics and they educate on the number of embryos and what's best for them and things like that. So, um, thankfully I just get to, you know, do uterine procedures. And if they have questions, I do my best to talk with them as a provider, educating them on their options, not on my opinion. Right. You Mm -hmm. just go clinical on them. Mm -hmm. You just, yeah. 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 
Okay. So you made the decision to adopt. Uh And I want to know what that process was like. So I can envision you and your husband after your seventh IUI and you're like, I'm, you know, I just, my, I just can't do IVF. I just, Mm -hmm. there's just in the back of my mind. I just can't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then how did that discussion go? Yeah. Um, so like I said, we, we tried on our own and we did IUIs because we knew we wanted to have a baby. Uh, we just didn't know how we were going to have that baby. Um, and we had to wait the three years for adoption. And so we were just doing it to buy time a little bit. And so by the time we were done with our seventh IUI, that was about two and a half years. So we reached back out to the agency that we used or that we applied for in the beginning. Now, how did you find the agency? Google. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) adoption agencies in Colorado. babies. Exactly. (laughs) Dr. Google. That's right. And I discourage that so much. I know. I hate (laughs) Dr. Google. Please do not go to Dr. Google. That's funny. So it was somebody local. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't even know why I, we, I just looked at Colorado. I think because I wanted to, I wanted face to face. I can't, I don't do well if I can't see your face. So I don't want to talk on the phone. I don't want to talk to some machine. I don't want to email. I want to see your face. Um, so this was an agency based up in little or, uh, Loveland. And in the beginning they were like, okay, come back in three years after you've been married that long. Well, and at this point it was two. Two and a half. Two and a half. You were getting close. Getting close. Okay. It was, it was like October. And, and you were like, if he stays married to me for six oh more my God. months, we have I'm to, golden. We have to start now because he's about to divorce me. <laughs> this medication and hormones are going wild. Um, so about October, I reached out again and they were like, oh, we changed it to two years. Go ahead and apply. Let's get you started. And we're like, perfect timing. Shocking, right? Yeah. Um, it usually doesn't work that way. So no. that's, I mean, but honestly, I, I mean, it's just, it's just all perfect timing, just all perfect timing. Um, so in November, we started the application process, um, which the adoption process, they know more about us than anybody, anybody that like our doctors know about us. When you buy a house, you have to submit so many things you have to submit way more things for adoption. Like more personal things? mm -hmm. Yeah. Like what's an example? Um, so through the home study, you, I mean, obviously do, you have to submit like your last physical. Um, they had to check in every state that we lived in the last seven years of child abuse and neglect records, driving records for the last seven years in every state that we lived in, which I, I mean, I, they have to do their due diligence. They're giving somebody a human. I understand, but it was just so crazy. Wow. Um, yeah. So the the application process and the home study took about four to six months. Wow. Um, we had to take a two day class. You have you to read and you do. said home study. Mm-hmm. It, is that what it sounds like? Like yeah. they yeah. give you a whole bunch of stuff and they're like, go home and study. Um, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> you have to take like online classes or, um, like an online kind of like, um, parenting C- CEUs. Yeah. Like parenting. So what would, like, what would they ask you? Like, did they give you examples? Like if your child throws their glass against the wall, what is your repercussion? It, like, like that? Similarly. Yeah. Or, so 
more so like um, with kiddos who are adopted, these are some of the things that they'll go through. But children who aren't adopted, they'll go through these same things as well. Um, this is how, this is what, this is how you can respond. This is the best way to respond. This is what research shows you should, how you should respond. Um, once you do adopt a child, you yourself can go through an emotional roller coaster, just like postpartum depression. You could have post-adoption depression. Um, so a lot of things like that. And if it's, um, if you adopt of a different race, resources for that or how to handle it, words, um, a lot do you, of, do you feel like that was a parenting class that every parent should take before they get pregnant? Absolute. I mean, I learned <laughs> so much. I don't know how people have built, have babies and, and not go through classes like that, but obviously kids are raised just fine. Well, was, some, 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 <laughs> um, it was very beneficial. Very good. And especially for my husband who he is an optimist, super positive, doesn't really see a negative in anything like, Oh, we're going to adopt a baby. It's, it's going to be great. I mean, don't (laughs) worry. Don't worry if if, um, he's black and we're white in a, a society where racism is, I don't know, at an, not an all time high, but still out there. It's going to be fine. Like, we're going to be great. No, you, you need to take a class and you need to learn what can happen and what you're supposed to do. Um, so it was very, I mean, it was really beneficial. That's good. The process was long and it was tedious just because you had to, you know, print off things, get records, get tax records, get payroll records, get house records. They had to come to our house three times to walk around, make sure our plugins were plugged, make sure we oh. had a, a baby gate, even though an infant doesn't crawl or walk until later on. Wow. Um, that must've been nerve wracking in the beginning. It was, but then it was like, what do you, I mean, what do you, what do you yeah. do? Like you just tell me to put a, a plastic cover in a plug in. Sure. I'll, okay. Now what? What do you want us to do? <laughs> I'll do whatever you want. I'll do Yeah. I'll do whatever you want. Yeah. Just tell me. Yeah. Um, but I can see, I mean, you hear stories of, you, you always remember the bad stories as opposed to the good ones. Um, and I can see people who are adopting or, or foster care for that matter. And that's probably what a lot of the social workers that come to our homes for home studies, um, are used to. And it's not always a good situation. And so they probably do have homes where they go in and they're like, you have to like, do a complete overhaul if you're, if you want a child. And so they come to our home and it's like, you guys are really boring and we're like, great. <laughs> that's what we like to, that's what we like to hear. Um, and then in the process, in the, in the home study process, uh, my husband got a new job, so we had to move. So we had to do another home visit uh. to make sure our new home is up to code. And then, so we started in November, we were approved June 10th. We were matched with a, a birth mom July 25th, and baby came July 28th. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, the birth mom, did she pick you? Mm-hmm. She did. Yeah, good so question. So you're like in a catalog mm-hmm. of potential parents, and she's flipping through, and she's like, I like Kimberly. Yes, <laughs> so, which is a strange thing to think about, um, but we all make profile books pictures of our family, of our support system, uh, of our activities that we love, of our pets, everything. And then 
they get to look through the bio moms and bio dads um, get to look through however many profile books they want and they choose whoever they want to. Sounds a little like Facebook and maybe some of it's not like on the mark. Like some people may fabricate absolutely some of it. Yeah. I could imagine, I could imagine that for sure. Um, so they, they preliminary pick somebody and then you get to meet them. Oh, okay. So, so the mom picked you Mm -hmm. and this was, what'd you say? The The 25th, 25th. Mm -hmm. And so you, where did you meet? Like, well, so she wasn't due until August 17th. And so we were like, okay, we'll meet you next week. And we'll meet in a, you know, um, a mutual area. Um, But we didn't even get the chance to meet because she went into labor at 36 weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we actually met her in the hospital room after she delivered. Oh, my goodness. I know. It was uh, was pretty surreal. It was was very awkward. And is there... Is there anything you can tell us about the mom? Um, She was young. She's 20. She was 20. Um... There wasn't, I mean, there wasn't anything like it wasn't, she was on, she wasn't on drugs. She wasn't incarcerated. She was just young and her parents, she and her parents knew that she, they couldn't financially care for a baby and birth dad was in the picture or is in the picture. And I mean, he's young too, and they just couldn't financially care for a baby. Wow. So everybody was on, it was the best case scenario. Everybody was on board with the adoption plan. Mm. Um, and so there was never any like, no, I want the baby. No, I'll care for the baby. It was just like, we're so happy y'all are here and that wow. we chose you. Is that unusual? Because doesn't somebody in the family usually decide, no, we're keeping that baby in our family and we want to like, was that an unusual situation or do you even know? You may not yeah, even know. We don't even know. Yeah. We thought it was very unusual um, because she, um, while we were in the NICU, she brought her um, sister and brother-in-law and cousin to meet us. And they were so pleasant and they were believers and they prayed over us. And it was, it was unreal. I mean, it was just. Now, are they still involved? No. Like, oh, no. So the, they said. We don't need to see him again. He's all yours. We trust you. Take care of him. They, well, I mean, they offered, they, they offered to be available if we ever needed them. Um, but in the past six or seven, almost seven months, we really haven't heard from anybody, which is perfectly fine. And maybe they'll come back around later on. Do you have a fear about that at all? Um, no, no not a fear. I just, I just want it to be the best situation for our little man. Um, if they come back around, um, yeah, it would be interesting. It'd be at at this stage in the game because he's so little. Now, once he can make his own decision, it's a little bit like, okay, so this is the situation you get to decide if you want to go say hi, if you want to meet up, Mm-hmm. But at this stage in the game, it just, because we haven't had contact since the hospital, it would, it would be, it'd be different, but I don't have a fear of it mm-hmm. because he's, he's ours. Our, okay. our, um, our finalization, um, 
through the courts is actually next Wednesday. Oh, wow. And so it's a six-month process in Colorado. Do those parents have to be present? No. They signed okay. relinquishment paperwork. So they, yeah. Um, so you've basically, um, this was like a trial period, right? Now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did, did we pass? Can we Are keep we okay? Him? Golly. Uh, I want to know about the the first time you saw him and held him. That was a very surreal moment. And I don't know, when women have babies, when they physically give birth, I feel like all I've ever heard was um, they look at the baby and they know that that baby is theirs and they have this overwhelming joy and, and love for this child, which I did for this, for this baby because he's a baby. I mean, he was precious and small and he was like almost four pounds. He was less than four pounds. And so I got to hold him, but then it's like, okay, you are, I don't, you, I don't know you and you don't know me and you're mine. Are you sure you're mine? (laughs) Are are, are we sure he's mine? Like, does anybody, do I have to ask permission to hold him? Do I have to ask permission? Like when we left the hospital, nobody checked our IDs. Nobody checked. I mean, we were with him the whole time, like 24 seven for two weeks. So they knew that he was ours, but it's like, you're just going to give me a baby. Like, this little human. And so it took a while. It felt like I was babysitting, not that I was being a mom. So it took a while for me to have that connection with him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a beautiful moment, but it's just one of those things. It's just So when you went into the NICU, Mm -hmm. and I'm asking this because I know the process. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When you went into the NICU, did they band you along with a baby so that your bands match, so that they would match you together? They, they did eventually, um, because bio mom was still there. She had the original band. So she had the band that he had mm-hmm. with the name that she gave him. Uh, she named him. Mm-hmm, she did because, well, not because she could have named him all along, but sometimes when you, the process usually happens bio moms find out they're pregnant. They come to their resource center or they go to this agency and they say, let's make an adoption plan. So you have months to counsel and create this adoption plan and to, and to create a relationship with the adopt with the adoptive parents. We didn't have that. We were, we were going to have two or three weeks, but we had two hours. Right. Um, and so sometimes they'll bio moms, um, or birth moms will let the adoptive parents named the child in the hospital, um, but she didn't know us. And so she, and she, she had just met us after he was born. So she named him and they put the bands on him and her. Um, and then we got to meet and we got to spend some time together. And then eventually they changed the bands to what we named him, even though it's not official until after the court date. Yeah. 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 And I know she probably, needed to name him because she needed to have that memory. I think that memory is important for Absolutely. her to know she made the right decision. For sure. And she can always refer to the baby with a name that was real. For sure. Yeah. And it, and that's one thing that we learned throughout the process. It's very much about the birth mom, like the bio mom. She, she is sacrificing a whole lot and she is so strong to choose this path. Um, and so 
we we need to show as much respect and compassion for it as we can. And so the fact that she gets to choose us, a lot of people that we spoke with that weren't that aren't really knowledgeable in the adoption world, which is quite a few people, um, they didn't really understand that why does she get to choose? Like you're the one coming in and adopting. Why does she get to choose? Well, this is her situation. Like we're just we're just here if she wants us to be here and we want to be here so bad. Um, so she got to choose us and then she got to name him and whatever, if she wanted to come see him in the NICU, by all means, if that helps you, you, you're coming in having a baby and you're walking out without a baby. I can't imagine. And so she, whatever we can do to make her comfortable and to make her know that we are going to love this baby, like nobody's business. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So you got to do skin to skin. Yes. So tell me about that. It was wonderful. Like, this is what it feels like. Um, no, yeah. So we, so baby was born early morning. We met her around like, you know, nine or 10 AM. Now, did you get a phone call that she was in labor? We got a phone call that she chose us on Thursday and that we had a couple weeks. We got a phone call on Friday saying plans have changed. She still chooses you, but they're inducing her tonight today because of high blood pressure. So then and her, it being her first baby and, and with a history of labor and delivery, I'm like, okay, so it'll be 24 to 36 hours. So all day Friday, all day Saturday, not really any update. I'm like, she has to be at least four centimeters. Like she has to have some change. So the next day I get a text message. She's only one. I was like, oh, this is, this is never going to happen. Um, and so then Sunday morning, so we didn't hear anything else Saturday night and Sunday morning, we didn't even set our, uh, set our alarms because we just had no idea. And I woke up to a text message that said, she delivered, we'll meet you here at 10 a.m which the hospital was like an hour away from our house. And, and it was like eight. So we're like, all right, we got to go. Um, so we got to the hospital and we went in and met her for the very first time, met her parents, very awkward encounter, but I bet it, I don't think it could be any other way. Yeah. Um, so golly, it was so awkward walking in. She looked younger than 20. And so it's just like, are you 16? Are you, um, and she was, and she was very, uh, flat affect. Um, and her parents were in there and they were an interesting duo. They, they talked more than bio mom did. And, you know, interesting in the way that they would just mention things about bio mom that, just like family members mentioned, but it's not always like a, a pot. It doesn't always come off of as like a positive thing. And it's like, huh, do we laugh or do we, I don't know. Do we continue talking? And so we would just continue looking at bio mom. Like, do you have any questions? Like, what can we do for you? Are you in any pain? How, how is delivery? And so I asked how delivery was being a labor and delivery nurse at heart. And that, that was like shut down. Like they, I think it was pretty traumatizing from what I got from the conversation. Um, she had a high blood pressure, so she was on magnesium and had an an epidural. Um, but I think from what I gather, the actual delivery was probably a little traumatizing. Baby was fine, but I just don't know 
what details she went through. You know what I mean? Um, so. And you're just trying to make conversation. Yes. Like. And you're like, I know labor and delivery. I can. T- that's the only thing we have in common. <laughs> yeah. We have, we have nothing. I don't know what to talk to you about. And I just hope. And she had zero questions for us. Like she just remained pretty. So a mediator wasn't there from the adoption agency. Uh, yeah. Our social oh. worker was in there for sure. And she didn't help with this conversation? You know, or? she, um, she was a social worker who represented Biomon's mom. So they had met a few times, obviously, and, and ha- had worked through the process as much as they could, but she really, she, nobody, nobody really knew what to do. This was a very unusual situation because usually they meet before the delivery or they meet after mom is discharged from the hospital or something. So to meet a few hours after somebody delivers and knowing what women go through in labor and delivery, that is probably the most uncomfortable situation. Like you haven't taken a shower. You're probably exhausted. Everything hurts. Every muscle in your body hurts. Yes. And your parents are right here. Like both your mom and your dad. So it, it was just... Nothing came from that interaction besides us meeting for the first time. Like, no information was given or exchanged. I wanted to hug her, but you can't. I mean, you don't don't even want to be touched when you're in the bed after you deliver. So it was just just very interesting. After she um, recovered, like, the next day she came into the NICU, and it was just us three with the baby and... She even made the comment like, do you like him? Like, do you, is this okay? And it's like, yes, we love him. Like, please be assured that we love the guy. We love this baby. Um, And so we got to know her a little bit in those interactions, but still it wasn't, they weren't for very long, like maybe 15 to 30 minutes. Um, She held them right after delivery for a couple hours before they took him to the NICU. And then when she was in the NICU visiting while we were there, um, the social worker was like, do, do you want to hold him? And she was like, absolutely. And not really asking our permission, but making sure we were okay with it. And of course we were okay with it. So she held him for a little while. And that kind of brought up some internal fear. Cause it's like, of course, I mean, who wouldn't want to keep this little guy? Um, but she was very, I mean, she just held him and stared at him and then handed them back and was like, it's your turn. Like he's yours. Hmm. So we really had a, a, an amazing experience, which doesn't happen all the time, but we're just so thankful for that. And we, you know, waited there. I mean, we met with her for as long as she wanted to. She didn't really have any questions for us, didn't really have too much to say. Um, and then we went straight to the NICU and they were like, he's yours. Skin to skin. I was like, I've been here for two minutes. I would love to do skin to skin. And we didn't leave. We were there for two weeks solid. They're like, are you going to, are you guys going to stay yeah, we're, we're going to stay like all night long. So <laughs> if you have a private room, that'd be great. But if not, we'll sleep in these chairs and cots. And they actually uh, moved us into a private room, which was phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. That's so great. Did your husband also do skin to skin? He did. He yeah. was pumped about it. Does he have a, like a big hairy chest he and all that? Those are my favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Putting that poor little baby on this little hairy chest. It's the, the best head thing is ever. like this and it's like covered in hairy chest and it's like that is so awful You're, these pictures are great though oh, oh poor like it's man. up to no i mean yeah it was so Hair funny yeah exactly yeah wow that's really funny good. 
everyone knows that melatonin is a sleep aid, a natural sleep aid, not like the crazy prescription drugs you get that make you sleepwalk into the street in the middle of the night. But melatonin has another benefit that a lot of people don't know about in the fertility world. Yeah, it's a little crazy. Um, Your uterus has more receptor sites for melatonin than your brain does. So what happens? unbelievable. It is. But what it does is it helps blood flow to the uterine cavity, which we all know is extremely important. And in fact, blood flow is actually measured to the uterine cavity when you go to a fertility clinic. So if you're on melatonin, it's already helping the uterus. So while you sleep soundly at night, it's working to increase your uterine health. You can order melatonin at canonco.llc.com. When we, when she chose us and then we got to read her medical history and we met, um, little Gentry, like he was ours, whether he was ours for a day and she changed her mind or he's ours for life. Like we are going to work. He's ours. Like we're there. And so that was, that was so funny because in the NICU, they were like, are you, you guys can leave and come back. Like, this is our job. We do a really good job at it. Like, we'll care for him. And it's like, I mean, you guys do a great job, but we're here. Like, for the next two weeks, we're here. Or for however long, we're here 24-7. You can you can take down our number. You can take down our emergency contacts. But if you need to find us, we'll be next to his bed. So I think I think we just, and with the um, class that we went through and um, being the only two in, being encouraged to be the only two that cared for him, obviously along with the NICU nurses, um, we just wanted to. I think. I think somewhere inside, we just wanted to prove that we were, we could be parents. Like we could care for this little boy, with whatever he, need, whatever we could do, besides what the doctors and nurses needed to do. But we could provide everything else. Um, so yeah, that's why we stayed. And it was phenomenal because of skin to skin, um, skin to hair, skin to hair. <laughs> you like the baby comes off and it's like <laughs> chest hair. Like, oh, wear your shirt next time. It's awful. It was great. He loved it. Uh, uh, so cute. Yeah, that's why we stayed for sure. So did you show up at the hospital with like the car seat and everything or were they or were they like, he's in the NICU, he's going to be there a while, just come as you are? Um, we had everything in the car. You were good to go. We were good to go. Because before the home study could be completed, we had to have the car seat. In the car? We had to have it purchased. We didn't oh, have to have it in the car. I wondered if they had to inspect your car also and how you installed the car seat. That's a, that's a good point. They didn't. But I, but they asked, I mean, because we used to have to, we would go down with the family and we would make sure that that car seat was secure and that it was appropriate for that size of baby. Cause you know, if you're taking home a two pounder versus a 12 pounder, yeah, yeah, (laughs) very different car seats. (laughs) So they never really inspected the base of the car seat in the car, but we did have to do a car seat challenge. He um he had to stay in the car seat for two hours without his um oxygen mm-hmm. decreasing and yeah. he passed with flying colors. But he was Did he have oxygen when he was born? Was that part of his No. Oh. 
He was well, just 36 tiny. weaker. He's got some lungs. Yeah. They're developing. Yeah. So yeah. he was just tiny. He needed some help eating, but yeah. after that he was good to go. Yeah. They, we were a little nervous. They were like, well, your, your car seat needs an insert for four pounds or less because he's less than four pounds. Nobody told us. <laughs> but then we look at the car seat and it, thank the Lord it was made for four pounds. I mean, it had an insert for four pounds or less or whatever. Oh. So. Oh, wow. Now, um, did you formula feed or did you purchase breast milk? That's another, all these good questions. (laughs) Uh, we, from the get go, I was like, we're doing donated breast milk. We're going to do the best, uh, anything that we can do, we're going to do it. And so then we get to the NICU and they, um, obviously have the NeoSure, um, just because of the extra calories. And we're like, so when can we, uh, when can we switch to breast milk? And they're like, well, it's. $18 $18 for four ounces. It's gold. Gold. It's absolute gold. Yeah. And you have to pr- have a prescription. We can write it for you. But if you can't keep up the $18 for every four ounces, he's going to be eating 30 ounces a day eventually. So you just calculate that. Let us know. And we're like, oh. You saved so much money on IVF, though. You could have. <laughs> I know. Seriously, just put all that money. Put it in the breast milk. And donated breast milk. <laughs> And I was like, do I have any friends that just had babies? Well, and you think about the birth mom, the bio mom, mm-hmm. you know, she's going through all of the postpartum stuff. She's going through lactating, you know, the bleeding still, the, con- you know, the uterine contraction still. Yes. She's going through all that. And it's just, you know, of course my mind is spinning like, man, it's too bad you couldn't have her breast milk because it was that perfect 36 week breast yes. milk. Yes. You know, the colo- so, I mean, it yeah, was just the colostrum though, all yeah. the good stuff. But then you think about it and you get, and you get into her shoes and it's like, Can't that is a her. lot to ask. Oh, I know. And, uh, and you would hope if you were in that, you can only, you know, speculate if you were in that situation, would you be like, I'm going to, I know that I'm giving this couple my baby, but I have this breast milk and I'm going to give it to them. Yeah. But she being so young and right. Not really having that mindset. It just, it was never an option. I mean, it was never, it never crossed our mind to be I like. I wonder, but wouldn't you think it would be in part of the counseling? Like, is this one of the things you would like to do? So that was the other thing though, because she, she came to the agency a little late. Mm. Um, so she didn't have all of the counseling, which that kind of made me more nervous than anything else. Like, do, it, is she really, does she really know what she's doing? Um, I think she, when when usual, when usually birth moms or bio moms have, I don't know, I mean, anywhere from seven or, you know, three to seven months of counseling through this agency, um, they're prepared for all situations. And when they get to the day of birth, they're prepared for what's going to happen. She maybe had four to six weeks, maybe. Um, and being so young, it's like, do you, I mean, do you really understand what you're doing? Are you really going to feel okay after this day? Um, so the whole breastfeeding thing, I don't even think was yeah even on the table. On the table. Yeah. So you got to take the little pumpkin home. Yeah. I can't <laughs> believe they just like How, give you a human. <laughs> How was the car ride going home? It was really good, although I was like, is he breathing? I mean, we passed the car seat test. He's not turning blue. We had... <laughs> good sign. That's a good sign. <laughs> I, th- I, I can hear him breathing. I'm pretty sure. Um, eyes were closed. And 
we, we, I mean, we just look like we had gone on like a, a full week's vacation. We have all of our stuff in the back. We have gifts. We have all sorts. I mean, we got matched so quickly that we had nothing in the nursery. We were like, okay, so we'll have time to save up money. We'll have time to purchase things. We'll have time to decorate the nothing, not even a crib. So we get home and like our community just showed up. There was Aww. boxes on the doorstep. There Aww. was um, a family friend gave us their barely used beautiful crib. The the nurses that I work with bought us our rocking chair and this bear rug that we wanted. I mean, it was just amazing. But um, while we were in the NICU, my husband's parents watched our two dogs, a boxer oh. and a golden doodle. Oh, the best. They so are the best. We're driving home. Garrett's in the front or driving. The front seat is full. I'm in the middle seat with the baby, making sure he's still breathing. We have two dogs like staring at the baby <laughs> and breathing really heavily and hard. We have suitcases and bag. I mean, it was, it was so funny. But the car ride home, it fell a long way because it was over an hour to home, but it went really well. Yeah. He survived. Yeah. And yeah. you did too. That's and good. I did too. Yes. That's good. Yes. Did your family come down to see him? When um, like to our NICU? home? In the, in the NICU. NICU. Yeah. Oh yeah. My parents were there every, my parents were there every night just bringing us food. I, I really didn't leave. Yeah the Nikki room and thankfully they put us in a private room so we had our own tv and we had like a little cot um but they would have to they would kick me out because I just never left which I feel like probably many women would do um and so they brought us food and a couple nights they took us out to dinner and his parents came the one thing that we learned in the adoption classes especially with infant adoption is the more that it's just you and your husband touching and caring for this child, the stronger the connection will be hopefully. Um, and so for the first three months, nobody held the baby except us, which was incredibly hard because so many people wanted to love on him. Um, but I'm so thankful that we did that and protected that time. So we did skin to skin. And then for three months, it was just me and him changing diapers and feeding and holding him. And mm -hmm. it was, it was really wonderful, but that obviously takes a toll. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine again, again with hormones, I can't imagine delivering a baby, having that hormonal shift, being incredibly exhausted and then breastfeeding, even, even not even breastfeeding, just taking care of a baby with just going through all of that. I would wake up in the middle of the night and feed him. And again, these thoughts, I'm like, oh my gosh, we have to give him back. I can't, I can't care for him. I can't do this <laughs> the rest of my life. I can't wake up every two hours. I need my sleep. I need my sleep. Did I marry the right guy? Did we do the right thing? <laughs> Did I get the wrong child? <laughs> Did I get the wrong child? Is there somebody that can care for him? <sighs> it was, it was insane. And then I'd wake up in the morning and I'd be like, what was I thinking? Oh, I'm okay. No. I'm okay. It'll be all right. It'll be okay. So um, tell me a little bit about him. Little boy? Yeah. My little boy. Yeah. He's the best. Um, he is half Thai, half Caucasian. And uh, he is, so almost seven months. He's still a little pint size. He's like 13 and a half pounds. Trying to sit up, rolling over every now and then, not consistently. Smiles all the time. His cry is not a cry. It's like a squawk. It's like a, a squeaker squawk. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really cry, 
We put him in bed at 8 p.m. every night and he goes to sleep. I mean, literally, he's the perfect child. I mean, he's just so, I've never had children before, but he's so wonderful. I had the perfect child. Really? I did. She slept 12 hours first night home. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Do you still love your sleep? Yes. She's a sleeper. Yes. Well, that was the thing. I was like, okay, I can't have any expectations. Lots of women say their babies sleep through the night. Ours is tiny. It might take longer. We got to five months and he slept 10 to 11 hours. Ugh. And I am a brand new human being. Yeah. Yes. That's so great. Yeah. Now, when you decided to adopt, I'm going back just a little bit. Sorry. Yeah. Did you, um, did you just say you would take any baby, mm -hmm. any race, any situation, any? That's a good question too. There's, it's really, again, surreal. It's so strange. You have to fill out a preference form mm. on what you're willing to accept, which is difficult to do because you think, I'm a bad person if I say I can't accept this. Right. So, for example, uh, could you put on there, I don't want a drug addicted? Mm -hmm. You could. Okay. Yep. yep. That's, I mean, I, that's what I saw the majority of were drug addicted babies. And yeah. Those were hard. Very hard. I can't, I mean, it, being in the county hospital delivering those babies, it's it's very hard to know. Like, she tested positive baby's definitely going to test positive. So they are not going to be together anymore. I, I, yeah. you know, I Social hope. services is coming right in. Yep, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, there were a few things on there that we didn't accept um, just because of our the season of life that we're in. Um, a severely um, disabled or handicapped baby with um, that needed, that would need, you know, lifelong care or, or somebody to come in and care for we we couldn't we wouldn't be able to give that baby the time and the love that it it would need to thrive. There are some people that are meant to give that kind of care. I completely Thank agree. Goodness. Yes, I completely agree. Um, and so that's just not a season that we're in right now. Um, and I don't know if I would have been good mentally for that baby. Obviously, because we have some issues when it comes to hormones and lack of sleep. So I just don't know how well that would have gone. Um, but yeah, you can choose, you can even choose race or, or you can say that you um, can't take a certain race. The one thing that you cannot choose is gender with a specific agency. So um, we filled out the preference sheet and as long as it matched the bio mom, whoever the bio mom was, um, then they would pre present our profile to that bio mom. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you think the obstacles are, um, adopting an embryo versus adopting a baby? Are there, are they, are they similar obstacles? Do you think? Um, because it sounds like you kind of have to go through a lot for either. Yes. Although adopting an infant already born versus an embryo, it's way less expensive to do an embryo. Um, in the state of Colorado, embryos are considered property, not lives. And so I don't even think you have to do a home study for an embryo. Mm -hmm. Um, just your site consult. That's yeah, it. Yeah. Um, so even through 
I mean, obviously, yeah, you don't have to do a home study because that's, we don't do home studies. Mm-hmm. We just do a psych mm-hmm. consult and FD and, right. uh, that's it. Right. Um, even through the agency, I don't think they do too much. So you just have to yeah. psych consult and, and meet with them. So it's, it's way less yeah. intense. Than, Speaking of which, mm-hmm. do you plan on telling your son that he was adopted? Absolutely. Right off the bat. Right just, off the bat. And what, what are the words you're going to use to start off with? That's a really good question. Um, the reason I ask is because yeah. I interviewed a psychotherapist mm-hmm. and she said, I always like, you know, to, for them to start using words, even before the children are verbal Yes, words like donor, you know? And yep. so I wondered if, you know, adoption adopted yep, for something sure. like that was going to be a constant. Yep. Um, it'll adoption will be the, the word adopted will definitely be in our vocabulary and we'll start, and we were told the same thing. For, even before baby can understand you, tell him his story um, so that he can be proud of it and he can be proud of you guys and he can be proud of his bio mom for, for making this decision, which is, so my sister was adopted from Korea. Oh. Yeah. So well, that brings the whole picture together. I know. I know. And it, it is so strange. Again, everything works out perfectly because um, we... Growing up, I was like, I'm never adopting. I mean, my sister and I got along when we were little, but as we got older, we obviously didn't really get along. Not obviously, but we didn't get along. <laughs> um, but now that we're older, we obviously, we, not obviously, we get along just fine. Um, but I was, I'm never adopting. And then it just, heart change. Um, but the way that they did it, and with international adoption 30 years ago, it's just so different than what it is now. And so now, especially because he's a different ethnicity or half of a different ethnicity, it'll be, it'll be a conversation that we have whenever he wants to, or we'll talk about it openly. Mm -hmm. Um, so using the word adopted for sure will be in our vocabulary, but bringing it to his age level as he grows, um, in the beginning, I don't, I mean, we're just going to wing it. I feel like, but when, once he starts, that's all parenting is anyway. (laughs) Thank, thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, but once he starts understanding, then we'll just explain the fact that, you know, f- families are created and made in many different ways. And your, your bio mom was, um, she brought you into the world, but she chose us to care for you as you grow up. I mean, it's just, that's good. Some how spinning it, not spinning it, but explaining it in a way that they can understand it at their age level. Right. Yeah. Now, did you discuss if at one point in time in his life, he wants to find his bio mom? Is that, I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah. Um, so in, again, in Colorado, there's, it's illegal for, or not, yeah, it's illegal for it to be a closed adoption. Like closed adoption is just not a thing anymore. Which, which means? No, absolutely no contact and no information with the bio mom. Okay. So we have an agreement. Um, so through the adoption process and meeting with the bio mom and sometimes the bio dad, if he's involved, um, which in this situation he wasn't, it's just the bio mom. She wants desired one to two meetings a year with pictures every so often. And so we created a private Facebook page that only she's our, like, she's the only friend that we have on our private Facebook page. And we update pictures every once in a while. Um, as of right now, we haven't heard from her since she left the hospital. So who knows if we'll meet up this year, but maybe eventually down the road or maybe not. It's just going to be up to her. We're going to leave it up to her. Um, but when, um, Gentry grows up, 
if he wants to seek her out, then we have her information or we can go back to the agency and they can, they can find her and ask her if it's okay that we meet her. And that doesn't bother me because seeing my sister, it's a really big hole that is left in these kiddos hearts when they realize that their birth parents are not their daily parents. Um, and I will never be able to fill that hole in his heart. And so if meeting her or knowing about her will give him some sort of comfort, um, then by all means. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did your sister ever meet her bio parents? No. No. And she desires that. Um, yeah, she's mentioned it for, sh- for sure. I think she desires it more now that she's older. But going back to Korea and trying to find a, your your birth mom... I, it's, it's a daunting task. I bet. Now your parents, Mm -hmm. um, adopted her. Mm -hmm. They went over there. I'm sure they actually had somebody fly her over. Really? Yeah. Part of their agency. That was an option because they had, uh, my brother. Why did they make the decision to adopt? Um, so they had difficulties having my brother or getting pregnant with my brother. Is your mom PCOS also? No, she was, um, in, uh, endometriosis Mm -hmm. and she was told, you know, that she would have a very difficult time having a baby. So most likely not getting pregnant again after she had my brother. They tried, didn't, it didn't happen. So they decided to adopt. Um, and I'm not really sure why they decided international. I think I've asked them and they've told me, I just can't remember. Um, and then they adopted my sister they found out that she was going to come over, I don't know, in February. And then like two weeks later, they found out they were pregnant with me. Oh my goodness. So how old was she when they adopted her? My sister? Yeah. Uh, um, she came over when she was 11 months. Oh, she was a baby still. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing about my mom being pregnant with me, they told her that she wasn't going to carry or be able to carry me to term. And they were like, just come when you miscarry. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll do yeah. Oh, she went in for a, a hysterectomy pre-op and they were like, your pregnancy test is positive. So just come when you miscarry and then we'll do your hysterectomy at that point in time. And then they carried to term. So now they have three kids. Wow. When they didn't know that they were going to have three kids. Wow. So back in the day with endometriosis, they just did a hysterectomy. Yeah. She had, um, I mean, she had really painful, abnormal periods. And it just, there was, at that point in time, there was no need for her to keep her uterus. And I think it was so bad that she just opted to have it removed. Yeah. Now, something similar could happen to you. Very true. And we hear that all the time. The like thing you with, just wait. The thing with me is that you, and, and I know too much, you have to have periods in order to, to get pregnant. Like you have to ovulate and I do ovulate, but I ovulate every, not even every, like anywhere from six to 10 weeks to three months to yeah. Random. And when you ovulate that if your cycle is that abnormal, then the health of that egg is very unlikely to turn into, uh, you know, a uh, fertilized egg. So, I mean, there's always a chance. We've seen crazier things happen. Yeah. The first meeting that we had with our social worker in November, she came to our house and she, one of the questions was, how do you plan to financially um, pay for this adoption? 
And we're like, uh, savings and credit card. I mean, savings and sometimes credit card, but mostly savings. Like by the time we get the baby, we'll have savings saved up. It, it was almost $30,000 for the entire process. Um, and then they were like, okay, so average wait time is five months to two years after the home study is completed. And we're like, okay, so let's, you know, we get invoices to pay for different things throughout the process. Okay. So we're approved a month later. Um, they email and call and say, okay, so we're showing your, your profile book. Is this okay that we show it to this bio mom? This is our health history. And that was the first time that we had heard that our book was being shown, but we didn't know if it had been shown before because they didn't, they weren't, they didn't have to notify us each time, but that ended up being the very first time that they showed our profile book. And that was one month after we um, were approved and we're like, absolutely. You know, we were the, um, she looked at 18 profile books. We were the 18th book because we were the, um, newest people to be approved. And she chose us. We're like, okay, so we still have time to save money. Like she, if we're matched, we still have a couple weeks before baby's born. Okay. So we'll just continue saving money. And then she delivers. So we have match fee, we have delivery fee <laughs> and then baby was essentially placed with us. So five days after baby's born, we get placement fee. Each one of these fees is $7,000. And so it, and then do you have to pay for the NICU also like for his stay? No. So oh. that's on the mom's oh. insurance. Okay. And so when the mom comes to the agency, either they already have insurance or they um, get them on Medicaid immediately. Um, so thankfully that was not part of our payment plan, but, uh, it happened so fast. Be it, and even talking with people who come through the practice who have done adoption and now they're doing IVF or they're doing IVF and they might do adoption later. They just, all the stories we hear, it's like, we've been waiting for two years and there's no, there's no other explanation other than God. Like that's just, it's a God thing. For sure, with the IUI, with the miscarriage, with the timing, with marriage at 30, with, I mean, it just all lined up and there's just no other explanation. It it happened incredibly fast. Well, and you even think about going back as far as your parents adopting. Yes. And how that played a role in your life. Yes. And the fact that I didn't and, even want to adopt. Right. And maybe that's what alerted the bio mom. They've got, they've already adopted one person in their family. She's yeah. of Asian origin, correct? Mm -hmm. Korean. Yeah. So Ab for sure. But I mean, it's just like this pole puzzle, like came together. The just bigger for picture. The little man. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. It happened way faster than we thought, but we'll take it. <laughs> but that's another, re that's another way that I, I, I try and relate to, others, but to some extent I can't because things just happen differently for different people. And the fact that it happened in less than a year, that's unheard of. So to try and be encouraging with other people going through the adoption process, that, that piece is hard, but, um, I, I mean, obviously we wouldn't change it for anything. I have a one crazy question. Yeah. If you had had the time, would you have considered being prepped for lactation? Absolutely. <laughs> I want to say absolutely. I I didn't even know for as much as I've been in women's health, I didn't even know that was an option. Yeah. And some women do it, but yeah. it takes 
what, three to four months. You have yeah. to have proge- progesterone injection. I mean, you just, it's well, a lot of preparation. You have to fake your body into thinking you delivered a child. And yeah. if you think about all those hormones, your husband would have left you. So oh, <laughs> he would have definitely. And so now looking back, I, even if I get pregnant and have my, my own biological child, I will do my best to breastfeed and to pump, but to be the sole provider every night, every two hours for that first, however long, I don't think I could do it. I mean, women are stronger than anybody else, especially after you deliver a baby. Yeah. But to breastfeed, like I said, after delivering and caring and having to care for a child, I don't think I can mentally handle it. And so whether I would pump and he would feed at night or so to your question, I, and you know, the benefits of breastfeeding. Absolutely. So you're in the medical I field. Know. I know, but your sleep is so important. Oh, I mean, it's important because it feels good and it's important for somebody's sanity. And I just, hopefully I would be prepared a little bit better. But if I, before we were actually matched and went through the process, um, I was talking with some girlfriends in Texas and they were like, do you plan on doing that? And I was like, if I have enough time, if I know that I have, you know, two to four months, I will, I will for sure try if I can do it. And if that's beneficial for the baby, if I can produce the same, I don't even know if it's the same because you're not. And, and breast milk is, I mean, it's, it's, some of the most, I mean, it's the most amazing thing in the world almost, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, cause I had to take a lot of lactation courses as a NICU nurse, even when I would have, for example, if I ended up with a 27 weeker, uh-huh. we would have to find some other mom who had 27 week milk, Oh, you know, because that's how specific breast milk is. And even a term baby the saliva from that baby gets transferred to the mom. Yeah. That changes the milk that makes that milk produce. What is it that that baby needs even more of? See, I, it's just, it's, it's something else. Yeah. So when we talk about breast milk being gold and it's $18 an ounce, we're just like, let's pay for that. college instead. Yeah. <laughs> so instead of using like NeoSure or Similac, we purchase goat's milk based formula from Germany. Um, which is weird as well to think about that. I even, I mean, why not goat's milk from here? We have goats. We do have goats. A lot of the majority of formulas made in America, the main or the first ingredient is corn syrup solid. Mm. And that's just something that makes it so yummy. (laughs) Makes everything so yummy. Put that in my coffee and I'm happy. Fertility, Let's Be Honest, is hosted by Kalise Cryer. Our executive producer, editor, and sound engineer is Kirsten Bitzer. Our theme song is Somebody to Love by Andy De Los Santos. 